You are about to listen to At the Foot of Harsinai, a four-part series that details and illuminates the experience of the Jewish people receiving the Torah, as explained by the Gemara, Medrash, Rishonim, and Acharonim. Chumash Devarim opens up with Moshe Rabbeinu addressing the Jewish nation. This is the last month of his life, and he gives much directive in terms of where the Jewish people should be. And there's one Pasuk in Perak Dalid where Moshe Rabbeinu says, Raki Shamelacha, guard yourself, Ashmor Nafshachamaod, guard your nefesh much, Pentishkach as Advarm Esharoinecha, lest you forget the things that your eyes saw, Upenyasum Lavavecha, Koimechecha, or lest they leave your heart all the days of your life. Basically, here Moshe Rabbeinu is telling the Jewish nation, You were at Harsinai. You saw the kolos, the loud sounds, you saw the lapidim, the, the fire coming out. You were at Mamad HaSinai, and don't forget it. The Ramban there explains that it's a losasei and an asei. Both are included here. What Moshe Benu is charging the Jewish nation is with a lav, don't forget Mamad HaSinai, and an asei, remember it. And the Ramban explains that it is a mitzvah to <clears throat> remember it, to tell it over to our children, to <clears throat> fully imbibe it, never forget it, and give it over, and he explains why. He says, because Hashem created this ma'ama, this moment in time, the reason why Hashem brought the Jewish nation to Harsinai, and the reason why that moment was so filled with awe, was that the Jewish people then were supposed to be imbibing yira, imbibing a sense of appreciation of the awe, <clears throat> the majesty, the might of Hashem, and that moment was supposed to be lived throughout eternity, generation after generation. And the reality is that Mamad Harsinai, standing at the foot of <clears throat> Harsinai, was a life-altering experience, and it was a moment in time. Now, <clears throat> you and I weren't there, yet we're still charged with this very same losasei and this very same asei. Not all <clears throat> Rishonim counted fully as a mitzvah, Certainly the Ramban does, but regardless, there was a moment in time called Mam and Harsinai. According to Ramban, we're obligated to remember it, but according to everyone, it was a moment that we can re-experience, that we can relive. The focus of the series, the reason for the series, is to help bring some of the impact, the awe, the majesty of that moment, to try to relive it as much as we can, so that we can accept it both, obviously, during Shavuos, particularly as a Chag, but in general, to understand what that moment was. So to begin the series, I want to really begin with one very important observation. Many mitzvahs that we have in the Torah are misunderstood. One of the many mitzvahs that are misunderstood is a mitzvah called Sfira Sa'omer. You should count for yourself from the day after the Yom Tov, from the day that you bring the Omer HaTanufa. Now this is the biblical obligation, the mitzvah say, of counting Omer. And if you ask people, why do we count the Omer, what is the mitzvah about? So <clears throat> typically they'll say it has something to do with the carbon Omer, and the <clears throat> Sefer Chinuch explains that it has nothing whatsoever to do with the Omer. The Omer was a carbon that was brought the day <clears throat> after the first day of Pesach. That Omer was sort of like the Bikurim, it was the first, uh, first bringing of the, uh, of the wheat products, and from that moment on, all wheat from that season would be allowed to be eaten, but Sirah Sa'omer has nothing whatsoever to do with the carbon Omer. The, sir, the <coughs> Sefer Chinuch explains that Hashem <coughs> wanted to connect it to that day only because on the calendar it was a day that fit in. But Sirah Sa'omer commemorates and brings into our mind one single concept, that the Jewish nation left Mitzrayim to the greatest moment in creation that the Jewish nation understood that when they were leaving Mitzrayim, <clears throat> they were leaving Egypt, and it wasn't just an issue of escaping from slavery, but they were going to receive the Torah. And the reason we count is because we're counting much like a person anticipates, I can't wait, I can't wait, how many days are left, how many days are left? <clears throat> we count from the time we left Mitzrayim all the way until we get to Kabbalah Satorah. Sefer Chinuch explains we don't count the first day of Yom Tev because it really wouldn't it be appropriate to take away from the simcha of the Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim? That's why we count from the second day, which happens to coordinate to the time of the Omer being brought, and that's why the Torah pegs it to that day. But the mitzvah is strictly one single issue. 
It's trying to re-experience, trying to relive what the Jews who left Mitzrayim were experiencing. And the Sefer Chinuch is very clear. What they were experiencing was tremendous joy, the ultimate good. Greater to them than even leaving slavery was the fact that they were going to receive the Torah. And the reason why they we count is to relive that experience that they had. They were joyful and, and exuberant over the fact that they had left from slavery, from bondage to freedom, but even greater to them was the fact that they were going to receive the Torah. We count the days from Pesach to Shuas to re-experience, to relive that sense of, wow, I can't wait to receive the Torah. Now, this Sefer Chinuch, while very eye-opening, is also rather perplexing, because what the Sefer Chinuch clearly is saying is that it was greater to them receiving the Torah than their freedom. And that is a very difficult concept to understand. They were slaves. They were tortured. They were bled. As much as Torah is nice, as much as it's important, it's hard to understand how they could view the receiving of the Torah as greater to them than their own freedom. And the question is, what does the Sefer Chinuch mean? And to appreciate this, let's focus for a minute what it was like to be a Jew in Mitzrayim. When the Torah tells us they were slaves, it really is a very, very difficult concept to relate to. The Jews in Mitzrayim had no rights. They had no life. They couldn't own property. They couldn't choose their own destiny. They couldn't protect their children. They didn't have a right to anything. At any given moment, a Mitzri could come up and say, Here, come with me. You will do this. You will do that. The Jews were completely at the whim and the will of the Mitzrim. And it was a very, very difficult oppression. They were pushed to the limit. They were destroyed. When you own an animal, you treat it with the respect due to the animal, if for no other reason other than the fact that it will be, it'll work better. That wasn't the attitude that the Mitzram had. The Medrash Rabbah tells us that one of the great miracles of Kabbalah Satora was the fact that there were no Balimumim. There were no people who were handicapped, who were crippled, who were blind, who were mute. And the reason why that was a big miracle, explains Medrash Rabbah, is because the vast majority of the Jews who left Mitzrayim were mum, were bali mum. They, had, they were lame, they couldn't walk, or they couldn't talk, or they had, didn't have their eyesight, or couldn't hear. And the Medrash Rabbah explains why. <clears throat> when a Jew would be walking <clears throat> along the way, and Mitzrayim would tell him, go take this heavy load, and you have to lift it up a ladder, or whatever it may be, something would fall on him, would cut off his arm, and that was it. <clears throat> the Jew's arm was gone. Or he'd be walking, and Mitzri would make him work such and such, and he'd break his leg. Or he'd have to carry a heavy load, and some, some sand would get into his eye. The vast majority of the Jews were handicapped. They needed to say they either couldn't walk well, couldn't hold things in both hands, <clears throat> or blind, or lame. The, one of the great miracles of Har Sinai was the fact that Hashem said it's not proper for the Torah to be given to Bali Mumim, to people who are injured, who are damaged, just like a coin can't go to Duchen if he has a flaw, because it's not covered, a Torah, it's not covered for Hashem's bracha. It wasn't covered that the nation, God's people who are receiving the Torah should be Bali Mumim, should be handicapped, should be damaged, and therefore Hashem made the miracle that all of them should be healed, but the vast majority of the Jews were broken people, suffering year after year of torture, of unimaginable pain, heavy, heavy work, unending, unrelenting labor. Could you imagine the joy that they felt when they found out the news that they were free from bondage to freedom, from oppression to full rights? It's hard to imagine the simcha, it's hard to imagine the incredible joy. And yet the Sefer Chinuch is telling us that as much as that joy was real, as much as they fully <clears throat> lived in that moment, they anticipated with greater joy the fact that they were going to receive the Torah. And again, the question is, how could that be? Obviously, the Limit Torah is great, accepting the Torah is wonderful, but how could it possibly compare with the indescribable joy that they clearly felt of going from slavery to freedom? And to understand what the Sefer Chinuch means, I think we need to understand a little bit more what it was like leaving Mitzrayim, 
what it was like living in that generation, and what they were actually experiencing at the time. And to begin this process, let's start with one observation that the Ramban shares with us. The Ramban in Shmos explains to us that Hashem could have taken the Jewish people out of Mitzrayim in any number of ways. Hashem is very, very capable. Hashem could have airlifted the whole Jewish people out. Hashem could have killed off the entire Mitzrayim nation. Hashem could have done any which way that Hashem so desired. But that's not the way Hashem did it. Hashem took the Jewish nation out of Mitzrayim through a very long, slow, deliberate process. It took close to a year from the time that Moshe Rabbeinu first came to Paro and said, let the Jewish people out, until the Jewish people actually left Mitzrayim, was almost a year in time. And the Ramban explains that there was a particular reason for this, to show the Jewish nation, to show the Mitzrim who created, who runs, and who maintains physicality. Es Hashem says, I'm going to show the Jews, show the Mitzrim, that I played with the Mitzrim. What Hashem was doing was one time in history, and demonstrating that He, Kaviyachal, is the creator and maintainer of all physicality. What the Mitzrim saw, what the Jews saw, was clearly right in front of their eyes, the fact that every particle of physicality was created by Hashem, and is maintained by Hashem. And each of the makas demonstrated another illustration, another element of that. When water turned into blood, but only for the Mitzrim and not for the Jews, what every human being in that civilization saw was that water is clear, liquid, odorless, because Hashem so decrees it. But the minute that Hashem decrees otherwise, that water is going to turn thick, globulous and is going to smell. What every person alive saw was that water is water because Hashem created and maintains it. And the minute that Hashem says it should be otherwise, it'll turn into mud, it'll turn into blood, it'll turn into a rock, it'll turn into whatever Hashem so deems it appropriate. And it was level after level, maka after maka. Each maka lasted seven days, three weeks of warning in between. And each of the makas, each of the plagues was another demonstration of Hashem's control over another facet of physicality, and after 10 months, everyone there got it. Everyone there understood. Air is clear because Hashem deems it to be such. But the minute Hashem says it should no longer transmit light, it turns to complete, utter blackness, complete darkness. <clears throat> but darkness for a Mitzri, broad daylight for a Jew, and then Ramban explains something very, very peladic. We know that the first three days it was dark, but the next three days of the Mak of Choshech, it was so dark that the Mitzrim couldn't move. If they were climbed up a ladder and they were up with one leg in the air, that's where they stood for the next three days. If they were sitting down, they sat down and couldn't stand up for the next three days. So I remember for a long time I had the following question. What do you mean it's so dark that you can't sit down? Imagine you're standing up and you get tired, just sit down. It may be dark, you could be blind, you could sit, you climbed up a ladder, you want to come down, just fall. What do you mean they couldn't come down? They couldn't stand up. And the Ramban explains that it wasn't that it was dark, it was that normally light penetrates the air. The air, the atmosphere, what we live in, is made such that light can penetrate it. But what Hashem was showing the Jews, the Mitzram, and everyone alive, was the fact that air is that way because Hashem deemed it to be such. But the minute Hashem deems it to be otherwise, then light cannot penetrate the air. The first three days the air took on a thickness. It wasn't perceptible in the sense that you could move freely through it, but it blocked light to the Egyptians. The next three days the air became so thick that a mystery was jammed where he was. If he was sitting down, the air around him was so thick that he couldn't stand up, almost like jello, just thick, thick, thick air. And if he was standing on a ladder, he couldn't come down. Everything was so <clears throat> thickly surrounding him that he couldn't move. When I learned Chumash from my son many years ago, when he was little, he asked me, so how did Mitzrayim breathe? I don't know the answer. I guess it was a miracle. But the point is, what every human being alive saw <clears throat> was that physicality isn't just there. Hashem created maintains the world exactly as Hashem deems it to be such fit. 
And the minute Hashem says it should be otherwise, it totally reverses. And for 10 months, month after month, lesson after lesson, every Mitzri saw this and every Jew saw this. And clearly the Jews were on a very high level of Amuna. What we like to think we believe in, what we try to work on, they saw palpably right there. And that was before they got to the Yamsuf. That was before the Jewish nation actually left Mitzrayim. They had a tremendous understanding, and that understanding increased dramatically on the Yam. And you have to understand the scene. The entire Jewish nation is camped up against the Yam, and the Mitzrayim come rushing forward. The covered this clouds of glory, come and separate between the camps. The Mitzrayim try to charge through these clouds of glory. They can't get through. If you've ever flown in a plane and you... Look at the nice fluffy cumulus clouds out the window. You know the clouds don't offer that much resistance. But they did then and that entire night. The Mitzram on one side of these banks of clouds, the Jewish nation on the other. At night the wind starts blowing and starts creating these furrows deeper and deeper and deeper until the 12 channels cut through the Yam. And then at just the right moment, the Jewish nation walked through the Yam. The ocean bed, which is normally muck and mire, is smooth, and they're able to see one channel to the next, each shave it in its own channel, they're able to see one to the next to the next, when the Jewish nation gets to the other end. At that very moment, the Mitzrim are allowed to enter the Yam, the clouds lift up, the Mitzrim see the channels, they charge right in, and when the Mitzrim get to about center point, that's when a nice smooth road turns back to muck and mire, then it turned into hard plaster, the, ho- and the hooves of the horses are stuck where they are, the wheels are stuck, and every Mitzri at that moment realized and understood. They were at the base of the Yam, of the sea, and at that moment these powerful walls, hundreds of feet tall of sea, came crashing down. The Klaishal saw the Yad HaGdola, the power, the majesty but it wasn't just they saw the strength of Hashem. It wasn't just they saw the deliverance that Hashem brought them to. The Chassam Sofer makes a very, very important point. There's a Pasuk that says, Tahomos Yachasumu, Yardubim Solos Oven. We say it in Ajashir every day. The depths covered them. Yardubim Solos, they fell down into the depths like a, like a stone. Rashi explains that there are different levels in that Pasuk. You see, there were different levels of wickedness amongst the Egyptians. There were some who were pretty, pretty wicked. Those were like kash, those were like some type of wheat. They got bounced around. If a mitzri was just uh, sort of not so bad, not so good, he sunk pretty quickly. He sunk quickly. A person, mitzri, who was really kosher, who didn't do too much damage at all, he sunk like lead to the bottom meaning the Mitzvah were judged exactly who they were. <clears throat> Those who weren't so wicked went to their, death, to, to their death quickly. They sunk to the bottom literally like lead. Those who were Bainani sort of in the middle got bounced around a little bit. They were kept alive long enough to suffer. And those who were truly wicked were bounced around like a ping-pong ball back and forth, smashed and crushed and up but kept alive to suffer. But this was something that every Jew saw. And this is something that they sung in Ajashir, when we say those words, Ajashir, and the Jewish nation saw this, recognized it, and understood it. But the Chassam Sofer makes a very, very important point. He says what the Jews saw was that the Mitzrim were paid back exactly kafi who they were. If a fellow was not so bad, he died quickly. But the Jews recognized that guy, and they saw him, and they remembered him. He wasn't such a bad guy, quick death. Then they saw the other guy, there's, there's Muhammad over there, he was pretty wicked, you know, he wasn't, wasn't the worst of the worst, and they see him bouncing around for a bit and suffering, and then they see Mahmud over there. Mahmud was the wicked, evil oppressor, and they see him bouncing around and suffering, and what every Jew witnessed, experienced at that moment was that Hashem was there throughout the bondage, that Hashem was watching, holding back, waiting, and now paying back that which Kaviyach Hashem witnessed. But every Jew got to see the fact that not just that Hashem created and maintains the world, 
but that Hashem is there counting, calibrating, waiting, and every Jew saw the justice. And that's what the Pasuk says, Zekeli va'anveyu. The Jewish nation in Ajashi, we say it every day in davening. What they sang out in praise of Hashem is, Zekeli, this is my God, pointing with a finger. And pointing with a finger on, she says, this is my God. They saw Hashem so clearly that they pointed with a, with a finger. This is Hashem. And the Medrash explains to us what they saw was the greatest level of revelations. That which the greatest Nevi'im saw. When Yecheskel went up and saw things that no human being ever saw. What he saw did not compare to what the Jewish nation saw. The Shivcha Alayam, the lowest simplest person on the yam saw greater revelation, saw Hashem's hand more clearly than did the greatest Navi. And they reached a level of tremendous, tremendous emuna. Ten months in Mitzrayim seeing Hashem as the one who controls the world, and on the yam seeing Hashem's ashkacha, Hashem's constant vigilant watching, and then retribution and justice. And then they began the march into the desert. Kabbalah Satora was 49 days after, meaning to say they spent a good amount of time walking in the desert before they got to Harsinai. And you have to understand that they were escorted by Anne covered, surrounded on all sides by these powerful, powerful pillars that kept at abeyance all wild animals, <clears throat> all enemies. These powerful, powerful pillars made the desert sand smooth instead of a rocky terrain. It was a smooth, easy walk. It protected them from the sun. It was air-cooled. Each day the Ananim would come by and clean their clothing. They were protected and cleaned, guided by the Anan Ish, by this powerful pillar of light. What they drink in the Midbar, there was a rock, but not a little rock, a huge, huge mountainous type of rock that followed them, that traveled with them. And this rock would emit millions of gallons of water a day. Keep in mind, there are 600,000 men between the age of 20 and 60. If you add the women, you have 1.2 million people. If you add the children under 20, the adults over 60, you have a huge population, at least 3 million people. In the desert... You need at least a gallon, two gallons a day to drink. There were many, many animals, and much, much with them. Millions and millions of gallons of water a day. And the Medrash tells us that if you were at the encampment of the Jewish people in the Midbar, you would see trees, grass growing on the sides. Because it wasn't just that this bear would let out a little bit of water. When the bear would stop, when the Jewish nation would stop, and this rock would stop, and Moshe Rabbeinu would come forward, the heads of the shave, each shavit would come forward, and each head of a shavit would take his staff, put it next to the rock, and draw a line to his, where his shavit encamped. Remember, this was a huge, huge population, and it was encamped over 12 mil, a large, large area. And when he would bring his staff and create a line, and the Be'er would begin emitting water, and before you knew it, the water gained more strength and more strength, until there were thoroughs and powerful streams of water. As a matter of fact, between the f- four camp encampments, each three shavits in each area, you would have to take almost a boat to go across because it wasn't just a little trickle of water. It was a huge stream of water that came all the way through. And this rock constantly emitted millions of gallons of nace. It's hard to imagine or envision. What did the Jews eat in the Midbar? The matzah that they left with lasted a certain while, according to some opinions, 33 days. <clears throat> but it wasn't that long after when they had to have the shlav and then the mun. But what was mun? <clears throat> mun was this type of food that landed at your doorstop, just where you encamped. And it was perfectly assimilated. You didn't need the bathroom. It was the perfect food. It tasted like whatever you wanted. And it was left directly there, but only enough for your household the exact amount, exactly where you should be. However, one of the most Im- compelling parts about Mun was it was left exactly where it should be, depending upon your madrega. If you were a great tzaddik, it was right by your doorstop. 
If you weren't such a tzaddik, uh, it was a little bit further out. And if you were, <clears throat> you had to take a little bit of a hike. And it became very difficult for a Jew to sin in the Midbar. Why? Because all of his neighbors would know it. Yesterday, the day before, the day before that, the man was right at your doorstep. We get up this morning and all of a sudden you're hiking all the way down there. Whoa, whoa, what did you do? And every Jew saw that Hashem runs the world, Hashem watches, Hashem calculates, and they live with such miracles that it's hard to imagine. And I believe if you'd like to understand what the Jews in Mitzrayim saw, and what they experienced on the Yam, and then finally in these days in the Midbar, what they came to recognize is the reality of life. You see, every one of us has two parts to us. I have an Ashama that's pure, that's holy, that's Kaddish, and there's another part of me, a Nefesh Bahami. The eye that's pure, that's holy, my Neshama, only wants to serve Hashem, only wants to do what's right, what's proper. And the animal soul, the animal, the body that I'm put into, makes it very difficult to feel things, <clears throat> makes it very difficult to sense those things. And as a result of this, I am confused. I'm in this ever state of sometimes getting it, sometimes not, because I am an Ashama put into a body, and the result is that I have competing desires, competing natures. But what the Jews saw in Mitzrayim was that Hashem is here. And they saw clearly, palpably. And what they began understanding is the reason for life. And they understood what life is about. And in a heartbeat, they began to realize what opportunities life affords. They understood why they were put into this world. And they understood clearly right in front of their eyes what they could accomplish. How much they could grow, how much they could become and how much of a difference it made how they used their time. And what every Jew experienced right there in front of them was Hashem's presence, and they understood why they were there, why they were created, and because of that, their currency changed dramatically. No longer did money matter, no longer did position or honor matter. What they understood clearly is that who I am for eternity is based on one thing, what I shape myself into. And because they had that understanding, they also recognized that the ultimate moment of creation was coming. They were going to be the ones to receive the Torah. They were going to be Amam and Harsinai. They were the ones who were going to receive directly from Hashem the revelation. And that recognition was so powerful to them. They recognized the value of that to such an extent that that caused them a greater simcha, and a greater joy than even leaving from bondage to freedom. I believe that's the answer to the Sefer HaChinuch. They were incredibly happy to leave Mitzrayim because they left bondage to become free men. But as great as that joy was, there was an even greater joy because, oh my goodness, I have the opportunity to receive the Torah. <clears throat> I have the opportunity to experience Hashem. I have the opportunity to grow. They were on the type of Madriga they were on the level already to so clearly recognize the purpose of creation and the reason for it all, that receiving the Torah was more valuable, more precious to them than even going from slavery to freedom, and it brought them greater joy. And I believe that this Sefer HaChinuch is eye-opening to illustrate to us who these people were before they got to Mamad Har Sinai. Typically, we have a very primitive version of who the Jews were but a very misunderstood version. The reality is they were on a madrega that's hard to envision or imagine. They had seen such miracles, experienced Hashem so clearly, and that they were at a state that no generation previously, and until Mashiach comes, no generation till then after would ever experience. And then they were ready for Mamad Harsinai. Because Mamad Harsinai, standing at the mountain, that assemblage was to bring things to a new level, to a whole different plateau. And it's a Pasuk in Shemos that explains, V'yomer Hashem Moshe, Hashem says to Moshe, anochi I'm going to appear to you in the thickness of the cloud. I'm going to appear. Why? So that the nation could hear me speak to you. And in you also they'll have faith forever. What Hashem was saying to Moshe Rabbeinu was that this level was going to be different than even what they attained earlier. They were going to have complete 
understanding. And the Rambam in Hilchot Shisori Torah explains what they were being promised was nevuah. They weren't just going to see Hashem in the sense that you and I may experience Hashem by seeing a miracle. They weren't going to just understand creation. Every Jew was going to reach a level of Nevius. And the Rambam explains to us what a Navi is. The Rambam in Torah explains that a Navi is a changed state. Meaning again, I am a Neshama and I'm put in a body. My Neshama is pure and holy. My Neshama yearns to be close to Hashem. My Neshama yearns to do everything good and proper. But put into this body, I'm mixed up, I'm confused, and I'm ever competing. Both parts are vying for primacy, and both the body and the neshama are fighting constantly at war one with the other. Explains the Rambam, a novi is a person who negates his body to such an extent that his neshama is able to experience Hashem. After years and years of working on himself, and after years and years of spending a tremendous amount of time thinking about Hashem, learning Hashem's Torah, being poorish, separating from physical pleasures and separating himself from the mundane. When a person spends years and years, often decades, preparing himself to a point where he has total control over himself, to a point where he separates from the world, where he has no thoughts in his mind other than being close to Hashem, and he spends his days totally enveloped, totally thinking about Hashem and only Hashem, at that point, he turns into a different person. The normal physical hold on his neshama is released, his body no longer competes, and at that stage, he's ready for nevuah. Not every person who even reaches that stage is zochet to nevuah, but explains the Rambam that it's an actual process. It's a process of spiritual perfection, level after level, until the body no longer has a hold. You work day after day, week after week, in a very focused manner, the body's sway becomes weaker, the body's hold becomes less, and the neshama is able to come to the fore, and then that person is either a novi or a ben novi, he's ready in the sense that his body is no longer a blockage, and maybe he will be zocha, maybe he will merit having a prophecy, maybe he won't. But the Malbim makes a very important point. <laughs> the Malbim says that one of the greatest miracles in creation was that this entire nation, the entire Jewish people, became Nevi'im. It was a miracle. Why? Because they didn't go through this huge process. They didn't spend years and years separating from physicality, <clears throat> totally being misboned, totally thinking about Hashem and only Hashem. They were given this as a gift. And as a mushal, if an athlete spends decades working and training and diligently focused, and he takes a thousand pounds and lifts it over his head, that's nature. Very impressive. A great feat, but it's natural. If you and I were to do it, that'd be a miracle. Meaning my body doesn't have the physical strength. My musculature is not developed. My ligaments and tendons aren't strong enough, and I would break under that weight. The Jewish nation were not ready for Nevius. <clears throat> to be a Navi is a lifetime achievement of growing, changing, <clears throat> the essence of a person, and again explains the Malbim, one of the greatest miracles was the fact that they were granted Nevius because Hashem wanted the Jewish nation to see clearly, not as maybe, <clears throat> not as it probably is, and not even as something that really does look like Hashem. You see, <clears throat> the Rishonim explained that maybe one could argue it was a Moface, one could argue maybe it was Kishuf. <clears throat> one could argue that yes, it looks good and yes, it's miraculous, but still, <clears throat> maybe it's not Hashem. Every Jew at Mamar Sinai was Zoha merited prophecy so that every Jew could see and understand with total clarity and, and reality that it is God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, who gives the Torah. And that was supposed to be handed over generation to generation. And what the Jews experienced there was beyond what we could ever imagine. But it didn't stop there. It didn't stop at regular nevuah. Regular nevuah is different than what they experienced. You see, what Hashem said to Moshe was, I'm going to speak with you, Moshe, and they're going to hear. But Moshe Rabbeinu came back after 
the Kleinsfeld said, Nasavnishma, Moshe Rabbeinu came back to Hashem and said, the Jewish nation want more. Ritzoneinu liras es malkeinu. We want to experience Hashem ourselves. We don't want an intermediary. We don't want you speaking to Moshe and then <clears throat> hearing through Moshe. We want to experience Hashem directly without any interferences, without any intermediary. And the Surah explains that that's what they were granted. The Pasuk in Dvarim, <clears throat> when it sums up Kabbalah's Torah, says, Ponim Ponim, that Hashem spoke to the Jewish nation face to face. That is the Nevuah of Moshe Rabbeinu. The Rambam Yisori Torah explains that Moshe Rabbeinu was a Novi different than any other Novi. Normally, when a prophet is about to receive prophecy, he separates from the world, <clears throat> he puts himself into a special mood. Oftentimes there are people who had to play music to give him that sort of simcha, that sort of <clears throat> readiness state. And then he would go into a trance-like state. And if it was Zohar, <clears throat> the Hashem appearing to him, his body would begin trembling. He would begin shaking, and it was a fearful sight. You see, <clears throat> he was experiencing something well beyond even his capacity. Even if he became a Novi, even if he reached great spir- spiritual heights, he still was experiencing Hashem in a way that was well beyond his abilities. And it was a com- competition between his Nesham and his Guf, as Neshama was experiencing Hashem well beyond <clears throat> what the guf would want it to do. And it was almost an out-of-body experience because his body's hold had to be broken. As long as the body has a hold over me, I can't experience Hashem. Novi would have to go into an altered state of consciousness, body trembling. And then when he'd come back into his conscious mind, he would have to interpret what he saw. Almost all Neviim bring back Mashalim or Chidas, the Rambam explains the reason for that is because they had to leave their current state. They had to leave their body. Their body was in stupor. They had to leave it. And it was only when they came back that they could then interpret what they saw. But they weren't fully conscious. If they were fully conscious, they would die. It would be over, system overload. It would be impossible because the body would interfere. The only way they could possibly have a Nevoah is if their body was sort of put under anesthetic almost. And they sort of left their body in that state, then Hashem was separate and pure and could receive from Hashem. Then the Navi would have to come back into his body and now in his proper conscious mind interpret that which he saw. And that's why every Navi had to explain it. Sometimes the interpretation was with the dream as well, sometimes not. But almost every Navua that you'll see was Bitardema, even Avramavina was Tardema, was in a deep sleep, in a slumber in an altered state of consciousness. In the history of mankind, there was one human being who received Nevuah Bas Baklari Hamiria with total, absolute consciousness. Moshe Rabbeinu alone was a single Navi who Hashem spoke to when Moshe Rabbeinu was fully alert, fully conscious. He had reached such a level of spiritual perfection that his body, as it was, did not interfere. Like a clear glass, he could speak to Hashem while he was alert, fully awake. No other Navi before, no other Navi after reached that state. And the Surah explains that what the Jewish nation were asking for was exactly that state. And they were granted it. The first two Dibras were spoken by Hashem directly to the Jewish nation and with total, complete clarity of mind, with absolute consciousness, we heard Hashem say the words, Anochi Hashem Elokecha, we were gifted with a level of nevuah that was unprecedented, and the Jewish nation saw Shemayim Va'aretz opened up. Everything was clear. <clears throat> Everything was right there in front of them. <clears throat> they reach a level of prophecy. They reach a level of wisdom that is unparalleled and unimaginable. And to give you an illustration of what any single Jew, the most simple Jew, understood on Har Sinai, let's focus on an interesting halacha. On Shavuos, we eat milchig. Typically, we'll eat one meal, some meals, some people more, some people less. But there is a minute to eat milk on Shavuos. Why is that? So, Mishra Burin, Simon's tough Tzadik Dalit explains, Anishamati says, I heard one reason for it is very simple. When the Jews came down from Kabbalah Satorah, meaning Hashem appeared, Hashem told them, Maseris Adibras, and then Hashem said, Shuvah lechem lo lechem, go back to your tents. That was the time of Shuas. 
they went back and here was the problem. They had just received Kolator Kula, including all of the Lachas of Basabakalov. When they got back to their tents, they realized that the pots that they had used previously were Benyomo, had been used 24 hours with treif meat. And to prepare kosher meat was a huge process. They had to prepare the knives, and had to shecht it properly, had to salt it, had to do, meaning they knew all the halachas, but to do it means they had to kasha their vessels and prepare knives and all types of things. It was just way, way too complicated, too difficult to do in such a short period of time. Therefore, they ate milchig, and plenty of cows and etc. They ate milchig products because it was much easier than eating fleshics. That's how the Mishabur explains the reason why we eat milchig. And in fact, it's the, it's the Zohar, the Zohar explains, that the entire Torah is contained in the Seres Adibras. Now, here's the problem. The problem is that if you read through the Seres Adibras, backwards and forwards, forwards and back, ten times over, you will not find a single mention of meat and milk. You won't see a single mention of shechting. You won't see a single mention of blood being usher. None of the halachas that, that apparently they were keeping, that apparently created the problem that made them eat milchiks and afflictions, are there. The Seres Adibras are ten commandments. Nothing to do with treif, nothing to do with kosher, nothing to do with shechita, nothing to do with malicha. What does this mean? And what the Zohar explains to us is that the Aseris Adibras was code. Code means all of the Torah was contained in it. Hashem wrote the Torah with phenomenal wisdom well beyond any human being's comprehension and understanding, and everything in the Torah was contained within the Aseris Adibras. And the Jewish nation as a whole, man, woman, and child, were on the level to understand it then. And I want to give you one simple illustration to just appreciate what that means. The halacha is that women are obligated in Kiddush Friday night as are men. It's a mitzvah say, and to make Kiddush, Zohar, Hashem, Shabbat, remember the day of Shabbos, make it holy. Men and women are both obligated in, in that mitzvah. And here's the problem. We know that women are putter from mitzvah say shizman grama. Mitzvah say that are time-related. Women aren't obligated. Why are they obligated in, uh, in Kiddush Friday night? <clears throat> well, the answer is because Zohar and Shomer were said together. In the first Dibras, Hashem said, Zohar is Shomer Shabbat Remember the day of Shabbat to make it holy. That's the mitzvah of Kiddush. In the second time when Hashem said the Seres the Dibras, Hashem said, Shomer is Shabbat. Guard the Shabbat. The second set of Dibras is where Hashem clearly delineated the prohibitions of work. So Gemara tells us, just like women are in Shomer, meaning they're not allowed to do malacha, they're not allowed to work on Shabbos, so too they're in Zohar because of Nemru B'dibra Achad. Since both Dibras, Zohar and Shomer, were said with one Dibra in one expression, <clears throat> that connects them, so anyone who's in Shomer, anyone who is in the prohibition of doing malacha, is also in the positive commandment of remembering Kiddush, saying, Zohar Shem I'd like to explain to you what Chazal are telling us there. When Hashem said the Aseris Dibras, all ten of the Dibras were said together, as in Jachamur. Jachamur and on and on and on the ten Dibras. Explains in the Mechilta, no human being can speak that way, no human being can understand it that way, but that's the way Hashem said it. Meaning Hashem didn't say, Zohar, Hashem, 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 and later on, Shomer, Hashem said them together, blended, bonded together, because they're one unit, one. So Hashem said, Zachshamar. Now, if we heard Zachshamar, we wouldn't hear anything. But the Jewish nation at that point were in a vastly different level, a vastly different place in time. And they were able to understand and perceive exactly what Hashem was saying. And if you'd like to understand what this means, I'll give you a muscle because I think it requires some understanding. I hate to admit this, but when I was a boy growing up, computers didn't exist. No such entity. And we're not, you know, I mean, had the armed forces had some clunky sort of things, but the idea of a desktop computer wasn't. Computers began first as fancy word processors, and then they got a little fancier, and eventually... They became somewhat commonplace, and I clearly remember that you would put in a floppy disk. On that floppy disk was the program you wanted to operate the on the computer, 
and another floppy disk would have the data that you were writing. So let's say you wanted to use Microsoft Word. You'd have two disks. On one disk was the program of Microsoft Word. You put it into one slot. On the other disk would be the data you wanted to write. You would type away, and on the screen would be operating in the Microsoft Word. And when you hit save, it would save it to your floppy disk. Now, of course, if you wanted to use a different program, if you wanted to use Excel, a spreadsheet, you'd have to take out the floppy disk of Microsoft Word, put in a different floppy disk which had the programming of Excel, and then you'd be able to use the Excel spreadsheet on the computer screen. And any given time, you could use the computer to use one program. It might be Word, it might be Excel, it might be something else, but one at a time. In the early 90s, a new concept came out called multitasking, that a computer could work simultaneously two separate programs. And in Windows 95, Microsoft launched this revolution in computer programming. It was heralded with the same type of hype as a Super Bowl. They spent as much money, and it was supposed to revolutionize the world. It was something called Windows. What do Windows mean? Your computer, one computer, could have two windows. Imagine for a minute that you could have Word working on the computer. And then if you wanted, you could open another window, and in that other window would be Excel. Simultaneously, your computer could be functioning in two different modes and working two different programs. It was a revolution in computing. Most people, even when it came out, didn't really use it that way. But what we take as a given now, they could have many, many windows and many, many <clears throat> functions didn't exist. I think that is a very apt muscle to us. And I'll explain to you what I mean. If you tell me something now, I have to think through my clunky, slow, physical brain. Wait a minute, let me, you said this, and I thought that, and I, thought, and I have to think in very, very clear, <clears throat> concrete terms. One window functioning at a time. I cannot think about what you're saying and also think about another complex question. I can't multitask in complex terms because my physical brain is very, very limited, can only process one thing at a time. I have one window functioning. But what happens when I die? My body's put in the ground, but with my body is not just my arms and my legs, but my brain as well. You see, I am not the body. I'm not the arms, I'm not the head, I'm not the chest, and I'm not even the brain. I think through my brain. I have to process information through my brain, but I'm the guy inside. And while we think of the brain as such a wondrous, phenomenal feature in man, and it certainly is very, very impressive, it's actually extraordinarily limiting because it's clunky, it's physical, sluggish and slow. When my body is put in the ground and I separate, instantaneously every window opens up. Every event of my life comes through right there. Imagine a wall with a thousand pictures on it, each one a different stage of my life when I was young, when I was older, middle age, right there. And when I leave my body, instantly every moment of my life is right there. But I'm not looking at two windows, not at three I'm seeing everything right there. Now, as long as I'm in my physical body, I can't <clears throat> operate that way. I get have flashes and think quick, quick, you know, back and forth, but it's still within the context of a human brain, but that's because the brain is limiting, the brain is confining, and the brain holds me back. If you want to understand Yom Adin, it doesn't take too long to go through my whole life. But every thought, every, every interaction, every, what do you mean, how could it be? <laughs> it took me 80 years to live those. How could you possibly judge me that quickly? And the answer is, when I leave my body, it's right there. Everything, every conversation, every discussion, every thought is right there because I'm no longer limited. I go from the slow, slunk, clunky computers to now <clears throat> well beyond Pentium speed, well beyond any CPUs that we can imagine. I see every window open simultaneously. Again, we don't live in that reality now, but the Jewish nation at Harsinai did. You see, their bodies had no sway over them, had no control over them. As the Medrash tells us that they, their mumim, all of their physical impairments, were healed, the Zohar tells us so too any spiritual damage was completely healed. They reached a level of malachim 
where their body no longer could interfere. When they spoke to Hashem, Panim Panim, when they heard Hashem's revelation in full conscious mind, their mind was fully, completely alert, every window open. They heard Zachar and Shomer simultaneously and understood all of the halachas. They understood Basav Chalav. They understood all of the halachas of the Torah. Everything was like a Wikipedia of Torah downloaded into their brain and because they were totally, completely alert, fully there. And what the Jewish nation experienced was something that no other nation, no other time period ever did or ever will. They reached a level of clarity, the das of Sing Hashem, and that's something that we are supposed to attempt to re-experience and relive. We can never, unfortunately, relive that level. <clears throat> we can never reach that madrega, but trying to envision it, trying to imagine <clears throat> what it was like leaving the triumph, seeing the Dam Tzvardeya, and then being on the Yam and seeing all of the vast miracles happening there. Then being in the Midbar, living with the, the Mon and the Be'er, living with Ani Kovod. And then finally coming to the Har, the mountain of flame with powerful, powerful lightning blasts and chauffeur blasts out. And then finally seeing Hashem right there, speaking to, hearing Hashem directly. Imagining that, envisioning that is something that we're charged with. And it's something that is within our capacity to do on a certain level. And I want to close with one last observation, this part, the introduction. In Dvarim, Moshe Minu says to the Klayasol a recap of what happened. In Shmos, we're told on a sort of hova, sort of go-forward basis, what's happening. In Dvarim, Moshe Minu recounts. And he recounts the fact that Hashem spoke to you, and many of you came to me, the Rosh of Teichlam, the heads of, of each Sheva came to me and said, Enough! Meaning, after the Jewish people heard, after they heard the first of two of the Dibras, they said, We can't take it anymore. And the Medrash explains to us why. Every Jew died. You see, as holy as they were, as prepared as they were, it was system overload. It was just too much. Experiencing Hashem with total clarity of thought, their neshamas left the guf and they died. And it required tchiyasamesim. It required putting the neshama back into the body. That was the first anokhe Hashem lekecha. Then losiyah lekim lechein was a second deeper. Again they died and again Hashem had to put the neshamas back into the guf. And then all of the Rosh Shvatim came to Moshe and said, Enough, we can't take it anymore. We're going to die. Let Hashem speak to you. And while we don't see any complaint, Moshe Rabbeinu had a complaint against the Jewish nation. He said, You said to me that, that you, Moshe, you should go forward. And Hashem should no longer speak to us. Rashi explains that it's not not you, Moshe, in the hove, you in the feminine form. Why? Moshe Rabbeinu says, you made me weak. When you said to me that let Hashem speak through you, you weakened me, you took away my strength. I felt tremendous tsar. And I felt the rifi on the adayim, I felt the chalisha zadas, I lost my strength, I lost my vigor. When you said that to me, that Hashem shouldn't speak directly to you, but Hashem should speak through me, Moshe, I felt a tremendous weakening. Why? I saw that you weren't fear-filled enough to be close to Hashem from love. I saw that fear didn't fill you enough to love Hashem, to want to experience it, and you were willing to have an intermediary, had you been more filled with fear, you would have sensed the love of Hashem more, and you would have been willing to give it up, even no matter what it meant, but you weren't filled with enough fear to love Hashem sufficiently, and therefore you gave up that opportunity to hear the rest of the Dibras from Hashem. Some Sofer explains that basically, had they been more filled with fear, they would have such a love of Hashem, they would have been pulled like a moth to the flame, the moth just is magnetically pulled into the flame, it dies, but it has no choice. The Jewish nation would have been pulled to Hashem, even though in their mind it meant dying, but they would have been obviously kept alive. But they, were f- they didn't have enough fear in them of Hashem to love Hashem sufficiently, and therefore they agreed, let Moshe be the intermediary, let, let, let there be a machitza, speak to Moshe and then speak to us. Now, well, this is very interesting. There's one diuk, one observation is Rashi, that's very difficult to understand. Rashi is saying that Moshe turned to the Jewish nation and said, you're not fear-filled enough to love Hashem sufficiently. Now, fear-filled and love 
are two opposite emotions. We know there's something called Yiras Hashem, and there's something called Avas Hashem. Yiras Hashem means the awe of Hashem, the fear of Hashem, either the fear of punishment or the awe of the magnitude of Hashem, but it's a state of of Haredim, exactly what Rashi says. Haredi, the expression, the Haredi camp in Israel, Haredi means trembling. Haredi is trembling. I tremble out of fear of Hashem. That's fear. Avas Hashem is loving Hashem. You experience Hashem. You see the goodness of Hashem. see the love of Hashem. So naturally you love Hashem. But fear of Hashem, Haredim, and Avas Hashem are different opposites. Yet Rashi is saying, you didn't fear Hashem enough to love Him to want that extra closeness. You didn't fear Hashem enough to love Him. Either you feared Hashem, or you didn't fear Hashem, or you loved Hashem, or you didn't love Hashem. What do you mean? You didn't fear Hashem enough to love Hashem. And I believe this Rashi contains a great secret. In our generation, we're very focused on Avas Hashem. Avas Hashem, Avas, and Avas Hashem is very important. And it's very important to know that Hashem loves me. Hashem loves me more than any creation ever could love me. Hashem's chesed and Hashem's love is boundless and limitless. And that's an important lesson. But in our generation, we're very afraid of Yira. You don't talk about Yira, Yira Saonish, Rabbi, you're going to get me nervous. Don't talk about Yira Hashem, you're going to get me scared. We'll talk about Ava and not Yira. I think Rashi is sharing with us that one cannot exist without the other. You see, Yira Hashem doesn't simply mean fear of punishment. God's going to take a big hammer and hit me over the head. Yira Hashem is a cognition of Hashem's presence. Hashem's might, Hashem's majesty. <clears throat> Yira Shemayim comes from the understanding that Hashem is right here. Hashem is the Bore, Hashem is the creator, Hashem is the maintainer. <clears throat> by focusing on, by understanding the majesty, the awe of Hashem, I'm filled with a, charid, a sense of fear, a sense of awe, a sense of the greatness of Hashem. But that's a necessary ingredient for Avas Hashem. Why? You can't love Hashem unless you understand who Hashem is on whatever level you can. Meaning, love Hashem because Hashem loves me. I love my brother, I love my father, I love my son, I love, I love. It's nice, it's cute. You can't have Avas Hashem until you appreciate who Hashem is. When you're standing at the opening, at the gaping hole called the Grand Canyon, and you see the majesty and the awe, you're captivated. It's beautiful, it's magnificent. That's an inkling of an inkling of the natural instinct that a Jew would have if he'd experience Hashem. By seeing the might, the power, the majesty of Hashem, that brings me to the ultimate level of love. You can't have true Avas Hashem unless you have Yiras Hashem. Not because you're going to sin, but because you have no perception of Hashem. Until you perceive the greatness of Hashem, until you perceive the majesty, you can't fully perceive the love. You can't perceive the love that Hashem shares for you, and you can't have the natural instinctive love that a person has for the greatness of our Creator. And what Rashi is sharing with us is that one causes the other and the other causes the one. They're intertwined. You can't have Avas Hashem without Yerush Hashem, and you can't have Yerush Hashem without Avas Hashem. <clears throat> they both work together, and if you want to just think Hashem is good and kind and wonderful, it's true, but you won't begin to reach any level of Yerush Hashem, and you won't ever really come to any level of Avas Hashem. It's only when you perceive the greatness, the majesty, and the grandeur of Hashem that you begin to perceive how much He loves us and how great He is. Automatically, there's a sense of wow within my heart. There's a sense of being pulled towards Hashem. Then I can perceive even more His kindliness and His chesed. Then I can perceive even more His greatness and Yira. The Yira causes the Ava, Ava causes the Yira, and it becomes a cycle of ever growth. And let's use this as our introduction. Again, this is the opening point to begin understanding. The Rambam tells us there's a losa say and say to always remember Maman Hasinai, to remember that great experience. And what the Jews experienced at that moment was almost, almost there. Again, Moshe said you should reach more, you should have been ready to give up your life because that was the level of experience that you had, much like that moth to the flame. You should have been ready to go another level and really know that even though you'll die so drawn to Hashem that you're willing and wanting it anyway, but the Jewish nation weren't quite there. Therefore, they said, Moshe, when you receive the rest, we'll listen to Hashem speaking to you. But nevertheless, they reached a level that's unimaginable and beyond human comprehension. And it's upon us an obligation to dwell, to think, to perceive this as much as we can, and to attempt to relive this in whatever way that we're able to. You've been listening to At the Foot of Har Sinai. 
This is a Schmooze production. You can access the Schmooze at www.theshmuz.com or by going to the Schmooze app for Android or iPhone or on Kola Lashon at 718-906-6400 extension 141 or by calling 866-613-8672 theschmooze.com